welcome to What in the World Language Podcast. Today I'm speaking with author Naomi Raquel Enright. Naomi was born to a Jewish American father and an Ecuadorian mother in La Paz, Bolivia. She is a native English and Spanish speaker and was raised in New York City. She taught Spanish for eight years and worked as a diversity practitioner for three years, where she became a national seed seeking educational equity and diversity facilitator. Her essay, From One Exile to Another, appeared in the beginning, The Beijing of America, personal narratives about being mixed race in the 21st century. She has also published essays in Hold the Line magazine, Family Story Project, and Roll Reboot. She has a blog where she writes about the ideology of racial difference, challenging systemic racism, grief, loss, and parenting. Enright holds a BA in anthropology from Kenyon College and studied at the Universidad de Sevilla in España her junior year. She resides with her family in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the show, Naomi. Thank you, Jedi. Thank you. Awesome. I'm glad you're here. This is going to be this is going to be beautiful. So, you too. Thank you. We're going to talk a little bit about your book, um, Strength of Soul. Um, mm-hmm. So, you discuss in the book the complexities of identity, uh, being labeled in this sort of packaging of identity and racialization, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say in the book, so much of who we are and how we see ourselves in the world around us is informed by family and history. Um, and the cover of your book has a beautiful story. You want to tell us a little bit about about the cover? Absolutely. Um, the cover of my book is a sun painted by my son, Sebastian. Uh, and it was designed by my husband, Adam. Um, the sun represents for me my deceased father who passed away from um, stage, well, cardiac arrest as a result of stage four pancreatic cancer um, nearly a year to the day after my son's birth. And I was very close to my father. And the day that he died, it was a dark, dreary, rainy day. And as we left the hospital, the sun actually began to break through the clouds and I pointed up to the sun and I said, that's Bobby. And ever since that moment, I have really felt his presence, um, you know, spiritual, ethereal presence in the sun. Uh, and I feel that that has given me strength to raise my son in the ways that um, I'm raising him, I'm mothering him, um, as well as to pursue my fight against my role in the fight against systemic racism and white supremacy um, and anti-blackness while also naming my lived experience um, and my family's truth. Right. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful cover. I love it. And I love seeing that connection between your family already on the cover. Right. So I'm going to start with a passage from your book that I feel resonates with the current situation that we find ourselves in, given the murder of George Floyd um, and the protests that we're now seeing. This passage from your book really hits at the questions that are at the forefront of the current movement and situations. So, and as you write, in her article, White Debt, Eula Bliss comments on Claudia Rankin's article, The Condition of Black Life is One of Mourning, for the New York Times Magazine, after the June 2015 Charleston Church Massacre. And I quote, Sitting with her essay in front of me, I asked myself, 
what the condition of white life might be. Hearing the term white supremacist in the wake of that shooting had given me another occasion. To wonder whether white supremacists are any more dangerous than regular white people who tend to enjoy supremacy without believing in it. Mm -hmm. I just felt like that was powerful in this moment in time. It kind of captures that. It does. I agree. I think um, that passage from Eulabis's article, White Debt, struck me because um, I think that there's a notion amongst many in our society that white supremacy or being a white supremacist is only manifested one way uh, and that it's very overt and it's very, you know, in terms of yelling epithets or being overtly racist. Um, but uh, in my view, and particularly now after becoming a mother and raising my my presumed to be white son, you know, white presenting son. Um, I personally believe that white supremacy is not only the bedrock of this society and all of its institutions, but it also, um, it gives white people a sense of superiority even when they are sometimes actively fighting against racism. So I think sometimes, you know, quote unquote, regular white people and quote unquote, regular anti-racist white folks can also in some ways be sort of convinced of that supremacy and convinced of that inherent difference from black and brown people. Um, and that's why that quote stood out to me, because I thought, you know, how do you challenge an ideology and a system if in so many ways we're still very much adhering to its 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 tenets and believing it to be true and to be sort of just intrinsic and natural um, in the world. Um, so yeah, I agree. I think that quote is is powerful. And I, in fact, emphasize that last bit myself, like italicized it in my book, um, right. precisely for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. I agree. I agree with that assessment. We're changing systems when we're, we're complicit. Those implicit biases that we're not even aware exactly. of, upholding those structures and systems that we're not even aware of. Yeah. So jumping right in uh, to your book, I'm going to kind of the first question here is uh, it starts off with a quote that I like from your book. It says, our stories are not written on our faces. Mm. So I feel like this quote sums up the spirit of your book. It sums up your struggle, your mother and father struggle, mm-hmm. the struggle you try to educate your child and students again against. And that's the struggle of internalized racism as an oppressive force that purposeful blindness and privilege on the part of most white folks Mm -hmm. in America. It's it's powerful. It's about uncovering historical racism and patterns that manifest themselves today in various systemic structures. Mm -hmm. This gets at the core of your book and the experiences that you share. These are powerful narratives. So tell us a bit, uh, Naomi, about how the book came about. Absolutely. Um, so as I said, I, I am the mother of a nearly 10-year-old son, and um, I grew up in a multi-ethnic family. My mother, dark-skinned Ecuadorian, my father, white Jewish-American, and I grew up in New York. I'm brown. Um, I'm bilingual. And I always took sort of, I've always been sort of navigating those multi-layers, I guess, to my identity and always thinking, you know, how do I fit into the American narrative? Um, I've also been deeply, deeply passionate about studying and fighting racism my entire life. I genuinely feel that in terms of it being a lifelong passion, this would be it. Um, And it's always manifested in my work in different ways. Um, And when I was pregnant, I thought, 
Oh, there's a high likelihood this kid will be light skinned because my husband is of Irish and German ancestry. Grew up in um in the Midwest in Ohio, and um, I was fairly certain that my child would look white. I couldn't be you know 100, but I was like oh, 99.9, <laughs> and um, I was not wrong. And so my son came was born uh, and as a baby, particularly was blonde, has um, blue green eyes, and is white to to the naked eye and, and to the world, and particularly in the American right. context. And when I would mother him and roam the world with him, you know me. And, my brown skin and him with his light skin, the assumptions that were made about us were so, so deeply offensive and, um, Mm. and presumptive as well as I began to realize solidifying this belief that white people are separate from everyone else and that white people are superior to everyone else. Right. People would talk to me about being lucky that he looked white. Um, or, you know, you must be so thankful that he looks white. You don't have to worry about him in the same ways that you would for a brown or black son. And even though those, that's true, I don't have to worry for him in the way that I would if I'd given birth to a child with coloring closer to my own. Um, to me, that was unacceptable. You know, I thought, but why right. Why should I accept that as a, um, okay? It's not. And right. um, I also just was exhausted by having to sort of defend and explain who we are no matter what. <laughs> I could just be going to the supermarket and someone would be, you know, would make a comment or ask a question. Um, and so I began to bring this conversation into my work as a Spanish teacher. And when I was a Spanish teacher, I was drawn to teaching Spanish in part because of the connection between language and culture and thinking of how my whole existence is informed by speaking two languages and by going to Ecuador to see my family pretty much every summer growing up and um, always navigating sort of what does it mean? You know, how does the language that we speak or the words that we use inform our mindsets and inform the ways that we relate to others or even how we self-conceptualize? And so this is a conversation I was consistently having with my students. But once Sebastian was born and I began to experience the world as his mother, I took that conversation to a different level with my students. And I started to realize you know what, this piece is actually the real passion. I love language, and but my passion is identity and culture. And so I shifted to work as um, an equity practitioner with that sort of impetus and that excitement of like, yes, you know, let's fight this system, you know, and also be who I am, right? Bring my story to the, to the table. And as I started to bring that story to the table, it became apparent to me that there was little room for a family like mine. There was little room for a son like mine. And I... Re- realize that so often our narratives around racism and identity and particularly fighting racism solidify the the lies of whiteness as um, inherent and solidify the lie of racial difference as inherent. And I began to think, is there a way to challenge our lived reality of white supremacy and systemic racism and anti-blackness while also challenging the language we use to do just that. And so that I started to write essays and I started to blog and I started to um, journal and talk to family and friends and colleagues. Um, And I would say all of that led to strength of soul and my being determined to put into the world a narrative that is for someone like Dan who reaps the benefit of whiteness, is presumed to be white, but who also rejects that as acceptable and who rejects that as um, inevitable. So it's, it's born out of those experiences, um, with your son and his, like, that's why I started with that quote, our stories are not written on our faces. Right. And 
yeah. you demonstrate that in the book and and now in this conversation about uh, people calling you out in public um, is that your son yeah. right he's too white to be your son 100%. so yeah that's powerful um also apart from your book i watched your you have a couple of youtube videos that i'll link in the show notes also um and the person interviewing you mentioned this idea of breathing in racism mm. and breathing out racism i will breathe out what i breathe in that's a powerful mm. metaphor for how we process and move and function within racist frameworks. It's not really a question as much as an observation. Um, I just love that, and I would encourage our, our listeners to, to click that link and watch that yeah. video. It was just, powerful. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. You breathe in and breathing out, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So, And I think it's important for teachers and, and, and folks now doing this work. Yes. Are, are, are coming into doing this work, thinking about who they surround themselves with, what their curriculum is made yep. up, the sort of things uh, that they perpetuate daily. Exactly. What you breathe in is what you're going to breathe out. So I, also in your book, you bring up a notion of chi, right? Yeah. Which I, I love this idea. <laughs> you speak about at the beginning of the book, and then you talk about being attuned and able to tell mm -hmm. when someone has a genuine interest in you. Or when it's just disapproval, mm. could you speak to that development? There's a there's an interesting story here. I, I like where you went with that in the book. Sure. Um, so yes, I mean, I grew up with people consistently questioning my family, um, sort of making an oddity out of our family. Um, people asking me, "Is that your real dad? Um, are you adopted? You know?" But he's white. It never ends for you. It right? never. Like, I is that your you. son? Is that your dad? Is that? <laughs> Exactly, wow. exactly. I often retreat from the world for these very reasons. <laughs> oh, um, but so I grew up with that. I grew up with people just being just aghast that we were who we say we were and maybe we were to each other, right? That that was indeed my biological father, um, et cetera. And, um, and I'm, also, I'm also just a very observant person. I tend to, I just love to sort of watch people and think about, you know, does their, what they're saying match their expression? Does their body language match their tone? These kinds of things I've always been sort of fascinated by the ways that we communicate with each other. And I would say right. that that interest, you know, combined with the ways that people interacted with my family made me very sensitive and very attuned to, to the verbal and nonverbal messages that I was receiving. And I personally think it prepared me to to be Celestian's mother and to handle generally with, with a lot of dignity and strength, the ways that people dismiss us. Um, and I think that when you are a person who is constantly being erased from the narrative and it's as if you were not there, um, you learn to, you pick up on so much more, right? You don't take things for granted. Right. You're, you're accustomed right. to sort of being relegated to the sidelines or to the shadows. And um, also I think it's because it's combined with this sort of passion of mine, right? I don't think that everyone who grows up in a multi-ethnic family is this way. <laughs> um, right. But I, I think that for me, it's that combination of how the family I grew up with um, and the conversations we would have. And my parents were very... Um, very upfront and direct about discussing racism and discussing identity and discussing history with me and my brother. I have an older brother. And I think that those conversations also set me on a path toward being able to, to pick up on more of what's happening in the space that I'm in. Um, right. And also 
living outside of the States. I think that's been huge is that I lived, I would live in Ecuador for six weeks at a time sometimes in the summers. And I also lived in Sevilla in college. And I think that when you have left the American context, it gives you a whole other perspective on how people um, make sense of who they are and who each other are um, in the world. Right. Um, not to say that there's, you know, utopias outside of the States, but, um, but the States right. is a very particular culture. <laughs> right. So. It gives you perspective. So that's beautiful because it really kind of leads into this next <clears throat> next question yeah. that I have that deals with the role that your parents played in your life and your identity development really stands out in chapter two where you tell the story uh, where you were a student um, uh, of calling a student out in art class one day. This is when you – high school, right? right? Did I remember that correctly? Yeah, yeah high school. And you called this student out for challenging your right mm-hmm. to speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And you link that to your parents speaking openly with you when you were young about your identity yeah. and about society and its history and how that empowered you to stand up in that moment and, and ultimately write this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this makes me think of, of my heritage language students thinking Spanish here that, yeah. that do not have that background right, Mm -hmm. that you had and that support and do indeed silence their language and shut down a part of their identity, even before events like this that you experienced in your classroom occur. So the question is, what what have you said to students or anyone that does not have that foundation you had or even the strength to push back in a Mm. moment like this? How do you go about pushing back against that sort of linguistic profiling? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Um, I think it's very delicate, right? Because I think that my mother's immigration story to this country is one of of privilege in truth. My mother uh, won a scholarship to study at Tulane University in college at the age of 19. And she came here and she also came from a family that was... um, you know, middle-class Ecuadorian family, educated professionals. And grew up with a a sense of um, own power, I guess. And she then came to this country where she was astounded to see the ways that people responded to her and especially to her and my father once they were a married couple here in the States. Um, But I often, and especially as I get older, I'm aware that that history of my mother's contributed greatly to her sense of self as an immigrant in this country and her sense of self as a mother of two multi-ethnic children in the States. Um, And so I'm very sensitive to there being divergent histories in terms of one's immigration or one's family's immigration to this country. Um, But I think that there has to be an intentionality in particularly in educators um, roles with their students in terms of giving their students these tools to feel good about who they are and all the layers of who they are. And so not behaving as if being bilingual is somehow um, a problem, right? It's actually the greatest advantage and bilingualism can lead to multilingualism, you know, trilingualism and multilingualism. And so essentially sort of shifting this perspective that because your parents are poor or because your parents were immigrants or because your parents are brown or whatever the narrative is, that that somehow makes you less than. Um, and so I would I would confront that with my students. You know, I would talk to them a lot about um, feeling pride in, in that history, regardless of how it came to exist in this context, in the American context. Um, and I found over time that my students, particularly my, my um, Latinx students, heritage, Spanish-speaking students, 
would slowly begin to feel a sort of pride about that. And I had kids whose family spoke it, but hadn't taught it to them. Um, and especially once my son was born, who is bilingual, they were all amazed. They were like, you're teaching him Spanish. And I said, absolutely. I was like, to me, to of not, course. exactly. To not teach him Spanish would be to deny him a whole aspect of his person, um, right. and of, of his story. Right. And so my kids began exactly. to, to sort of take ownership of that and be like, well, I want to learn Spanish too, you know, and I would do conversation groups or I'd show films, um, in a way to have them sort of, um, Play Spanish, give Spanish the importance that that it deserved, right? Because I think there's this right. notion that English and being an American means that you shed all these other aspects of who you are. When in fact, you know, the combination of it all and the ownership of it all is what gives you more strength, in my opinion, and what gives you more tools to challenge those who dismiss you because, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I encourage that in my exact same things in my my heritage we we talk about identidad hybrida right your hybrid identity hybrida. yeah and uh so you know what i find interesting um and other teachers have shared this story mm. is when i um speak spanish in in public it's it's rewarded right mm -hmm. it's looked at as like sophistication education oh wow you speak two languages amazing it's beautiful but let right. a black, black or brown person do that, yeah. and it's all of a sudden a different thing. And yeah. uh, it's always been fascinating to me to to see that, right, that difference in how how people are approached, right? Exactly. I mean, I think you're not only exactly right, but I think that what you're saying touches upon what I'm wishing to bring to the surface, which is this whiteness is on a pedestal, right? That being a white person or being presumed to be a white person or perceived to be a white person automatically entitles you to this comfort and this privilege and this power and this protection and all these layers of life. And to me, that's exactly what that speaks to because, right. and that's why I challenged this girl in high school, right? She was oddly, you know, interestingly enough, she was a daughter of a, of a German immigrant and she spoke German, Hungarian, I'm sorry, she was Hungarian. And I said to her, I was like, what is so different about my speaking Spanish and choosing to speak Spanish with my friends who also speak it with you speaking Hungarian with your mother or with your Hungarian community? And she really was stumped, right? right? She was like, I don't know, right? And I'm like, Never well, I do. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, well, I do. Yeah, the difference yeah. is that I'm supposed to somehow cowtail and, you know, cowtail and curtail who I am to please you or to make you comfortable. Right. Um, and I refuse to do Suppress that. Suppress your identity. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that's... And it, it's a real thing, and it, and it rears its ugly head, and I see it in my students um, mm -hmm. when they suppress their language. And you can see when you start to um, honor what they bring to the table, they start to shine and yes. feel comfortable yes. um, after a time. And it's really sad that, that you know, there are teachers out there that will, will not allow that lingu linguistic repertoire. So yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing when when the the kids recognize the power that they bring yeah. to the table. It takes work, um, but you it's like the the sunshine on the cover of your book. It just starts <laughs> to glow once they acknowledge um, what they have. So yeah. moving forward from your high school experience uh -huh. to your college experience, <laughs> um, there was a group that you encountered in college called Adelante, right, uh, mm -hmm. which is moving forward, right? 
Um, it's yeah. the Asociación de Estudiantes Latinos Americanos de Naciones Tropicales y Exóticas. Right. So um, it's the Association of Latino Students, Latin American Students at, from Tropical Nation, Tropical yep. and Exotic Nations, right, in English. Ay, Dios mío. <laughs> so do you want to speak to that for a second for our listeners? Um, sure. I, I'm laughing, but it's really not funny. Uh, right. I think this is an important point to reflect on as, as, a, as a Latinx person moving in these spaces yep. of identity and the intersection one encounters, this being for you on such encounter, mm -hmm. uh, it's that notion of othering. Yeah. So, so tell our listeners a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, so yes, I, I went to Kenyon college, which is an overwhelmingly white college. Uh, I think it's improved in the 20 years since I graduated, but, um, but in those days it was certainly a very homogeneous, um, school. And, um, this is me coming from New York with my lived experience, my high school being like a mini United Nations. So I was very unaccustomed to being in overwhelmingly white communities. It was new to me. And, um, when I saw the name for the Latin, in those days, they called the Latino Student Association. Um, I got excited. I was like, Oh, one exists. Awesome. Right. And I got the letter and I read the name Adelante, again, felt excited because, as you say, that means, you know, onward or moving forward. And I think that's a beautiful sort of image. Um, but then I read the fine print. And yes, it stood for Asociación de Estudiantes Latinoamericanos de Naciones Tropicales y Exóticas. And I was shocked, you know, and I literally was like mouth agape. And I said to my parents, do you see what this is? What? You know, like, who came up with this? And right. I decided that I would discuss it at the first meeting. And I did. And I was met with stares of shock and confusion and even um, sort of even feeling, you know, offended. And which struck me as just amazing. I was like, if there's anyone who needs to be offended right now, it's me, <laughs> right? Because right, right. I'm like, you've reduced the, an entire region of people to a stereotype, right? I mean, right. this notion of tropical and exotic. Um, and it was an important moment for me because I realized two things. One, I wasn't happy with the reception I, I had, you know, so am I bringing it up? And I decided to just never go back and I left and I never returned. And I regret that because I think that I could have created some change if I had stayed and I had engaged right. in conversation and discussion with my um, club members. Um, so right. I regret that. And it was a lesson to me. And so it was a lesson to me in not quitting too fast as well as right. in acknowledging that, people are coming at these conversations from wholly different worlds. And so to many of my white classmates, it seemed like sort of either um, a compliment or uh, something creative. And they could never sort of put on, you know, through my lens of being a Latina and feeling offended by it and why. And so I think it was this pivotal moment for me in um, thinking more deeply and more critically about the not only how divergent our experiences are from each other, but also um, being somewhat forgiving in the conversation, right? That I could be both offended and engage, right? Whereas I decided right. to be offended right. and disengage. And leave. <laughs> right. ah, yeah, I did. Yeah, no, that's a great realization. <laughs> that's, and, and a lot of people get pissed at things and then they just leave and then there's no moment of change, right? Um, so, I mean, you know. When you know better, you do better, right? Exactly, exactly. Right, so in college, you also went to Sevilla in That's Spain, right. right? 
la Universidad de Sevilla. My wife yeah. is from Sevilla. Yes. And, 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 I've, and I've lived there. Um, I love it. Uh, so I want you to tell us a bit about your time there, about not forgetting the colonial history between Spain and Latin America, and also how blending in in, in Sevilla was a lesson for mm. you about assumptions and prejudice. Because it was in Sevilla where you began to contemplate the link between language and identity. And up to that point, you said that you never really thought about bilingualism. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's fascinating when I read that. Yeah. Um, Tell us so about yes, it. I mean, Sevilla is just my heart. I have yet to return and I plan to someday. And it was a transformative experience for me because I... I, yes, as you say, I grew up bilingually, right? And to me, speaking two languages was just, it just was. It's just the way I existed. And I didn't really think twice about it much. Um, but all of a sudden, when I went to Sevilla, and I was able to engage with everyone in my maternal tongue, uh, my mother tongue, um, I began to think, like, I felt this um, reception, this positive reception and this comfort. Because even in which is where my mother's from, I'm still viewed as American and I dress differently and I say different, you know, I have a different sort of um, inflection to, to, to my Spanish. Um, and so I didn't quite ever necessarily feel at home in Ecuador. Um, and oddly enough, in Sevilla, despite its colonial history with Latin America, I ended up feeling a sort of a comfort and a familiarity. Um, Sevilla you know, so many of the, of the, um, you know, men who, colonists who went to Latin America were from the south of Spain. They were from Sevilla and from, you know, all these right. cities in the south. And so a lot of the um, architecture in, in Latin America is very similar to, to Sevilla. Right. And I would look at Sevilla and I would be like, it looked like Guayaquil, you know, like looks like my mother's city. And so there was this familiarity in, in the weather. The weather is very similar to, to Guayaquil. Um, and I was received warmly. Um, there was the occasional sort of, you know, sense of like coming home in a way that I thought was odd because I'm like, I'm also descended from, um, Native Americans and from, um, enslaved Africans. Right. So I'm like this, I'm not just Spanish, right. In my ancestry on my mother's side. Um, but nevertheless, there was this positivity to, to seeing me, to speaking with me, to engaging with me in a way that I just had never felt in the States um, or even in Ecuador. And right. I, I was just in awe. You know, I was in awe that I could be in a place where I didn't have to defend or justify or explain who I am, um, which I do on a daily basis for the most part my entire life. And, and in Sevilla was the first time that I didn't have to do that. Um, and I fell in love with the experience. I fell in love with being able to to move mm, smoothly and easily through the world without having to sort of have um, my antenna up all the time. Um, and, and that's where I, again, began to think, you know, why, how, how uh, integral my being bilingual, my being a Spanish speaker um, is to my identity. Um, and I had never thought about that either. <laughs> I had just taken it all for granted, I guess. Um, but all of a sudden, being a Spanish speaker and having all these associations with the Spanish language and with certain you know, aspects of culture, of, of Spanish and um, Latin American culture, um, I began to sort of, you know, dig it a little deeper into it um, and, and realize that there was a strong connection there, that my, my comfort in 
Sevilla was is in large part due to the fact that I am a Spanish, a native Spanish speaker. Right, right. I just thought it was fascinating when I was like, oh, hey, there's a connection there. You know? So, um, yeah. <laughs> so your high school, your college, your experiences living in Sevilla, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. Discuss how this translates into the work you did in your classroom with your your students, right? Um, tell us a bit yeah. about, you know, working with your students on language, culture, identity, kind of what, yeah. what did that look like for you? I remember you mentioned showing a movie Beyond Race in class. You had a, a, a class on race um, and yeah. identity. Um, so speak a little bit about how you work with your, your students on that. Those Absolutely. Um so when I start to think of career paths for myself, um, I ended up teaching Spanish. And in part, I taught it because similarly to my experience in Sevilla, I loved being able to engage with English and Spanish. And I thought that as a Spanish teacher, I could bring to the table my whole truth um, and, and run with my love of language, culture, and identity, the themes of language, culture, and identity. And so... When I began to teach, I was given a lot of freedom to create my own curricula. I taught fifth to eighth grade for eight years. And over the course of those eight years, I created a curricula that emphasized this connection for all of my students. And so I had my students every year, pretty much, I would begin the year with different uh, projects, but they were always having students um, define language, culture, and identity. And we would, with those definitions, move forward for the school year. And... Um, I would engage my students in discussions about just what, you know, just how language informs, how it shifts, you know, how we change. And I noticed that, especially for my bilingual, trilingual or multilingual students, there was a lot of resonance, you know, for them, they would say things like, um, yeah, I, you know, when I'm in Japan with my mom's family, I'm so different and I have a different tone of voice and the jokes are different. And then when I come back, it's different to speak English again, right? This kind of thing. Um, and I realized there was a resonance for my students across the board. They didn't necessarily have to be Spanish speakers. Um, and once my son was born and I started to confront, you know, being the dark skinned mother of a presumed to be white son, I wanted to engage them in more conversations around the concept of race and about racism and whiteness. Um, and so I would create, um, um, what do they call them? Um, electives. Mm -hmm. And an elective I created was called Beyond Race, exactly. And it was a way of examining the construction of race, the continued construction of race and the construction of whiteness in particular, and how that is um, integral to the maintaining of systemic racism, white supremacy and, and, um, and to blackness. And so I would do things like we would watch an episode of Finding Your Roots, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s PBS program, Finding Your Roots, right. as a way to uncover the complexities, right? That we, we we name people white or we name people black or brown, but there's so much more to who they are right. beneath the skin um, and certainly even in lived experience, you know, outside of their DNA. Um, so my electives would examine that. My electives, we would watch films like La Historia Oficial or Stand and Deliver. So there was a lot of social justice um, elements to my teaching. And I also was at a school that is a social justice oriented, activism oriented school. This right. was at for eight years. Um, Given that you had, you had a, a privilege to design your own curriculum. So yes. many educators do not have that opportunity. A hundred percent. I would consistently thank my, my administrators, you know, my bosses and my um, team for, for giving me that freedom. Because I think that if I hadn't had that, there was no way I would have 
ended up even being where I am. I mean, I, I owe, um, I think so much of this, um, determination and passion and, and, you know, drive was born in, um, at Manhattan country school, it's called. And, um, and I feel very grateful for that experience. I feel indebted to their sort of, you know, respecting my, my decisions and my choices. Um, I was even, it's interesting, Manhattan country school is also a progressive school and often in progressive schools, teachers go by the first name. And as a Spanish teacher, I chose to be Senorita Naomi, and I justified this <laughs> by saying that in Latin America and in Spain, it is very rare for children to call adults by their first name. It is not very culturally um, acceptable. And I wanted to honor the school's culture, the progressive school culture and school history, but also honor our Latin American and, and you know Latinx way of being. And so I had to, you know, sort of this agreement of being Senorita Naomi. Um, and that was just one example of sort of my being like, I want to do things a little differently, you know, and mm -hmm. my, they often joke with me. They're like, you're the only one in the school with a title. No one else, even though even the head of school doesn't have a title and you have a title. Um, but I was like, well, I'm a Spanish teacher. And if we're trying to have them learn about cultural differences and how rules, the same rules don't apply depending on the context you're in. Right. Um, that's part of it. I mean, I would have sometimes the kids when the head of school would come like on a tour or something, they would sometimes get up. And they would say, Buenas tardes, you know, and I remember being so thrilled because that's also much more culturally um, similar to Latin America. Not necessarily entirely. I mean, things have clearly changed. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but there's a sort of formality to Latin American culture um, and to the Spanish language that doesn't exist in um, North American culture and in English in my opinion. And so those were things also that I would emphasize with my kids. Um well, that's so, yeah, important. Sort of, yeah, that's yeah. important because you you mentioned the importance of seeing ourselves reflected in the classroom, right? Um, Latinx by people yeah. of color, and and thinking yeah. here since you had curricular uh, design liberty, you could design your curriculum and mm -hmm. how that influenced you to yeah. be, you know, essentially who you are now, right? Um, the work you do. Yeah. Uh, thinking about like on Twitter, um, there's the whole disrupt text movement yeah. where you need to mm -hmm. examine what's in your classroom, what, what things you're using and utilizing resources that highlight these voices, right? Um, what role, yes. and you've kind of already speaking a little bit to this, do educators play in affirming the multi-ethnic backgrounds of our students? What role do they play in finding, uh, disrupting and changing our curriculum to reflect the students, um, sitting right in front of us, right? And it's just not mm -hmm. enough to have resources, right? Cause you could do more damage, um, mm -hmm. teaching from a white lens, uh, if you have these books and, and curriculum, anti-racist curriculums in your hands and not know how to use them. So what, what role do we exactly. have in affirming these multi-ethnic identities? Yes. Um, I recently just saw someone post something that said teaching is political and I could not agree more. Right. I think that teachers hold tremendous power. Educators hold tremendous power in the stories they tell or don't tell. I need a clapping, ways, I need a clapping emoji for our uh, sound effect for that where it's like, yeah, exactly. Teaching is political. Absolutely. And so with that responsibility, right. Um, it is imperative that as teachers are creating curricula, or discussing curricula, um, and working in tandem with other teachers, and certainly thinking about the age groups that they're teaching, et cetera, that they are, I think, being fully aware of their own stories, their own histories, and what they bring to their teaching as whoever they are, right? Whatever paths you've walked, um, and being very um, aware of that 
and then wishing to, for their students, reflect what is familiar and reflect what is unfamiliar, right? And so this is referring to um, a seed uh, co, um, co-founding director, Emily Jane Style, who I have the utmost love and admiration and respect for, um, including just seed itself, the organization. I have deep, deep love for it. Um, she coined the term windows and mirrors, Mm-hmm. And um, windows being, right, that in your classroom, the windows are students looking into worlds that are unfamiliar to them. And the mirrors are reflections of the worlds that they know intimately, personally, firsthand. And I think that that is crucial. I don't think a classroom that doesn't provide both is not, in fact, educating, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think that a classroom that doesn't also take historical context into place um, or into play, I should say, sorry, is also not doing the work of, that education should be doing, right? Because I think that we so often, especially in this country, think of things as isolated events and we don't make the connection over the course of history, right? right? And right. sort of even what's happening right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and how that interplays with the history of the civil rights movement and, um, you know, all these ways that there's this threat, you know, that goes way back some 400 years, <laughs> to be right, precise, right. right? To where we are now. Um, and I think that there's sort of this uh, willful blindness, I guess, in our society about these aspects. And I think that that needs to end, right? Because I think that as you're educating children and you hold so much power in that classroom, right. you should be honest about this country's history. You should be honest about your role in that history. Um, and you should be honest in um, who you are teaching, right? Who are the children that I'm working with? Exactly. Um, what is What are they going home to? You know, what are the stories that they are hearing at home? Um, so yes, I think that it is absolutely, right? Teaching is political. So that um, requires work on our part as educators to educate yes. ourselves about these issues right and when you said that we look at thing and i things in isolation and how they're interconnected with history a lot uh i was reading i I don't know who posted it i was scrolling through on twitter and someone Mm -hmm. said that y'all think that uh um this recent murder right of uh, george floyd is 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 the is the point of these protests you know like that's the the Mm -hmm. that's the tip of the iceberg where this is all connected to decades and decades and decades of uh, repression and yep. black lives not being taken into consideration, people of color, their lives not being acknowledged. So right. I thought that was interesting because there is a connection and it isn't just Absolutely. one isolated event, right? Exactly. It's a collection exactly. of things. Absolutely. So you move out of the classroom, right? Um, in chapter nine, you mentioned how you finally, I think we went from high school to college to traveling to <laughs> Sevilla and now you're out of the classroom, right? <laughs> And it's an interesting life. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned how you finally left the Spanish classroom, chapter nine, and uh, mm-hmm. become a diversity associate at uh, mm-hmm. at the Horace Mann School in the Bronx, right? You mentioned yep. that that in this new line of work, you had to confront people, folks, about not wanting, not wanting to leave the language of race out of broader conversations. Uh, explain to our listeners how you address those issues around languages. This was an interesting mm. chapter, uh, and I love the Audre Lorde quote at the at the end of the chapter, and and then how you mm. begin the next chapter with a Tanahasi uh, quote. But that's right. It's really hard for folks to see leaving this language, right? Including yeah. it, leaving it out, right? Um, explain to our listeners a little bit about that idea you worked out in Absolutely. chapter nine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
So this thought process of mine began actually in my work at Horace Mann. Um, as I said, I, I went to Horace Mann and began this work as a diversity associate was my title and as an equity practitioner with this thrill that I could engage in work that connected all these pieces that I had always found so fascinating and that I had always felt um, connected with my own experience. And um, I really was sort of, you know, like skipping to work because <laughs> I was so excited to be able to engage with these issues for work. I was like, I get paid to do this. This is amazing. Right. Um, but over the course of time, I began to notice a uh, theme where in discussions challenging racism and challenging white supremacy and anti-blackness, there was a re reaffirmation of race as immutable and race as equating skin color and skin color equating similitude, affinity, or definer. And as a multi-ethnic person and parenting this presumed to be white son, that narrative does not fit my lived experience. It does not fit my son's lived experience. And I don't think it fits a lot of people's lived experience. And I began to play with ways to reframe the conversation without solidifying lies because it is a lie that we are as human beings inherently different from each other based on skin color and we intellectually understand this most of us in this society or many of us I should say in our society but we still on a on a visceral you know gut emotional level reaffirm them in our conversations and even in our work to dismantle the systems um, and so to me it became crucial, right? It became almost like this, this mission that I was on. And I was met with a lot of skepticism, a lot of disagreement, um, a lot of um, disapproval. And some people agreed with me and some people even agreed with my point, but just could not see a way around it. And as I say in the book, you know, I engaged in more than one productive conversation about it, but they never led to the kind of shifting I wanted to see. Um, for example, calling affinity groups racial affinity groups. To me, that is that is inherently wrong, right? I think that if you want to talk about affinity, you should talk about culture, you should talk about ethnicity. I think that white people do have an affinity in this in this society. I think um, they do need to examine and question um, and resist their whiteness. But I don't think that by virtue of looking white, they are automatically connected to each other. I don't believe that. Right. Um, I think my son looks white, but his experience is one that is wholly different from a whole bunch of white people in this society, including his own father. <laughs> right. um, and so I began to say, you know, why don't we rename things? Why don't we shift the language that we use. Um, and as I say, it was not a popular position. Um, and over time, it became somewhat um, untenable just in terms of wishing to do this work in a way that honors the truth of our country's history and reality, but that also honors the truth of who I am and who my family is. Um, and to me, it had to be both. Right? I was like, I wasn't going to engage in work that erases people like myself and people like my son. Um, and I also was also just, I worked really far away. I was had long hours and I decided um, it wasn't actually tenable anymore, you know, for my family and for myself. Um, and I left. And I think that um, like with Manhattan Country School, I think my time at Horace Mann helped to hone my thinking and helped to for me to even become aware of all the work that's happening in schools and otherwise, right? I mean, I feel equally thankful for the experience and I feel that it also contributes to where I find myself. I, I absolutely think that strength of soul came to be as a result of my work in both institutions. Um, and, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty adamant that 
we have to find a way to challenge the lived reality of anti-blackness and systemic racism and white supremacy without perpetuating this lie of inherent racial difference and of whiteness as automatic protector, right? Because I think that the ways that people respond to my son are so telling, right? People continuously talk to me about how lucky he is um, or how lucky I am to you know, not have to worry for him in the same ways. And I find that a, a tacit acceptance of the system as it stands. To me, it's a way of not really challenging at you know a base level the truth of our society. And I think that if we don't challenge it at that base level at some point, we will forever be caught in this cycle. I mean, to me, it's a very circular fight right now. And I think that for us to move forward, um, there has to be a dismantling of, of the ideology of, um, of whiteness and the ideology of, um, of inherent racial difference. I'm, I'm adamant about it. And I know that there are people who agree. I know there are people who don't. And I know there are people who flat out dismiss it. Um, but I think you speak your truth. <laughs> I'm like, I can't, I can't engage in work that erases me and that erases my family. And I, I mean, in some ways, I think it's a very delicate moment to be bringing up this aspect of the work, um, particularly in the climate right now in the country. But at the same time, I think it might be just the moment to bring it up, you know, right. just the moment to, to re-examine um, and to shift gears. I mean, I had a great uh, exchange with a, a fellow seed colleague who talked about colorblindness and how destructive it is. And I agreed with her and I said, I don't disagree in the least. Colorblindness is not the solution, but neither is color consciousness. And so we ended up in this exchange, which I found to be productive. She's white. Um, And I felt like that's sort of what needs to be happening. Even if we don't necessarily land in a place of agreement, I think there needs to be more and more space for people like myself and my son who do not fit so neatly into this us or them narrative. Um, and ultimately, I don't think anyone does. I don't think anyone, I don't care if you are white or black, fits into a white, and uh, uh, sorry, an us and them narrative, right? Because right. there's so many layers to who a person is and to the experiences they've had. And I just, I feel like if, if we're really wanting to challenge these horrible, oppressive systems, um, we have to, I think, begin by sort of naming each other's humanity and naming each other's complexity um, and also being willing to, to be wrong you know, and to make mistakes. I mean, I don't, I don't claim to have a solution to systemic racism and white supremacy and anti-blackness, but I do know that what we've been doing isn't working. So to me, it's like, well, let's, let's think of a different methodology for fighting these, these um, inhumane, unjust systems. Well, you know, for some people, they're, they're not even aware that what we are doing isn't working, right? The, um, exactly. So that's for a lot of people, that's going to be their first step. So hopefully yes. um, what we're seeing now, um, we can get some paradigm shifts happening and some, and which moves toward systemic change, right? Um, yeah. Just becoming aware of something is like the entry point, right? That's like, that's the that's the basics, right? Being aware yeah. of the systemic barriers, being aware that uh, whiteness is a social construct. You know, yes. so many people are not aware of that. They still buy into the biological superiority ideal, right? Um, yes. These race theories that existed uh, from from way back um, yeah. still still are in effect today, right? So they are. 
So yeah, that was that was interesting. Thank you for addressing that. So I want to switch really mm-hmm. quickly to language use. Um, kind of mm-hmm. going back to back in the classroom. Uh, what are your thoughts on the use of Spanglish and uh, more specifically, mm-hmm. teachers allowing their students mm-hmm. to utilize their entire linguistic repertoire? Um, I'm thinking of my heritage students here, yeah. um, and those teachers that tend to promote a standard academic language over honoring any other language um, and essentially suppress language that students bring into the classroom, suppressing their culture. So, so how do you deal with this when, when you were a teacher in your position Mm -hmm. at Horace Mann um, Mm -hmm. address that? Um, I appreciate this question because I think that it does also even sort of go hand in hand with my, thinking around the language of um, racial difference. But I personally have come to a place where I think that we need to be much more holistic about the language that people use and the ways that they speak. Um, Interestingly, I grew up in a home where Spanglish was not allowed and my mother would not let us switch that way. You know, she would really insist that we speak Spanish or English, right? And more precisely Spanish (laughs) more often than not. Um, And so I grew up sort of thinking that's not what you're supposed to do. Um, And I took a course in my 20s at NYU, which um, completely shifted perspective. And I learned about um, reversing language shift and how Spanish was a way to maintain Spanish and a way to maintain connections to countries of origin and is um, is in and of itself worthy, right? That you you should not dismiss Spanglish because it's not Spanish or not English. Um, And so I've come to a place where I respect it. I value it. And I think the messaging, particularly in um, foreign language classrooms or particularly in Spanish classrooms, uh, Spanish language classrooms, um, needs to be just that. That if if, if that's your language, if that's one of your languages or one of your you know, touchstones, that there shouldn't be a devaluation of it or a dismissal of it. Um, I think that it's interesting because for me now, with my own son, I'm so sort of um, entrenched in that thinking of the way I was brought up that I pretty much insist on Spanish with him, right? And I don't often let him um, use Spanglish, but it might, but it, it's it's not because of a devaluation, it's more because of uh, my own history, right? Just my own upbringing and sort of that's just like my go-to sort of knee-jerk thing. Um, but I, I don't believe it's less of value or less worthy. And I think that there are so many ways that um, people need to hang on to their countries or places of origin. And if Spanglish is one of those ways, which it is, um, I say that you should honor that. And I think you should respect that. And I also think that language is a living thing, right? Language is consistently shifting and changing regardless. I mean, Latinx is not a word I grew up with, right? Latinx is new in 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 the Spanish language, in the English language for that matter, right? Um, and I think that that's also being sort of... Um, willing to make those shifts of how language changes and how language reflects different realities, right? Not in terms of gender, for example, not he or she, but they and they and all this spectrum, right? right? So to me, it's all falls into that same category of language being evolving, language being a living thing, um, and respecting, respecting how it varies from person to person. Right. right. That, you know, if, if I say, um, you know, Naomi and my pronouns are, 
you know, she, her and hers, that's my right. And you should respect that, right? It's the same thing, right? To me, it's just, you know, if I prefer to speak Spanglish, you have to respect it because that's my preference and that's my comfort zone. Um, or if I prefer to speak Spanish alone with, you know, my mom or my son, that's okay too. I think there has to be a real kind of um, almost like a... Um, I think what you're saying, you're honoring what, yeah. what people bring to the table, right? You're honoring... Exactly. The students that walk into your room or the people that walk into exactly. your life. Uh, yeah. You're being inclusive when you use yes. Latinx, Latine, right? Um, yeah. It's, it's the language of inclusivity. Uh, and exactly. You're not, you're not othering. You're not outcasting. You're not yes. denying who that person is, right? And I, exactly. I think exactly. perhaps that's, that's what you're saying. And it's – I was just curious what, what your thoughts, and that was – Fascinating because yeah. I, I encounter a lot of teachers that um, that are absolutely against not only language, I mean uh, Spanglish, uh, they're against language, they're against Spanglish, <laughs> code switching, uh, mm. the inclusive language of Latine, right? They mm. don't really want to honor in that and it's sort, of, it's sort of teaching through a kind of a deficit lens. You look at what your students bring into the classroom and it's like, exactly. Oh, that's a deficit. Exactly. We do it. We exactly. do it with even when uh, English language learner students come in. They and instead 100%. of looking at their language as a as an asset, they yes. look at it as a deficit. And, exactly. Uh, I will say to that that I so in addition to my writing and you know the work I do in terms of equity and whatnot, I also supervise. Um, uh, student teachers in bilingual classrooms. And I often engage in conversations with my student teachers precisely around these issues. And I do think that it's important to teach students about formality versus informality. I do think that does matter because there is a larger structure out there that you don't want people to not be able to engage with or to you know, sort of get their foot in the door. And so sometimes I've noticed with my student teachers, I will engage in that conversation with them where it's not about correct or incorrect, it's about formal and informal and audience, right? Who am I speaking to? What's my ro relationship to these people? What's my role in this uh, moment? Um, and I do think that that's it, part of the conversation, um, but I could not agree more about the deficit model and um, essentially placing value on different ways of, of being ultimately um, in the world. And I think that that's what needs to end, you know, this sense of, you know, there's a right way to be or there's a wrong way to be. Um, I mean, there is a right way in terms of, you know, being empathic and respectful in these pieces right, for certain right. um i don't lose sight of that right, right. but um but there's not sort of you know if you speak spanglish versus if you speak spanish and or english like there's it's just a, a different way of experiencing the world and i exactly. think that that has to exactly. yeah be emphasized so as we wrap up here we're reaching the hour <laughs> mark for this podcast um, yeah. i want to read a quote from chapter 23 from bonnie sue i think i said her name correctly is that I'm not, I Sue. think it's either Sue or Sui, I'm not sure. Sui. Uh, so if you're listening, forgive me. Uh, in the experience, and I quote, in the experience of being an other, there's a valuable lesson in consciousness. You learn to listen harder because you have heard what others have to say about you before you even have the chance to speak. And you mm -hmm. kind of touched on some of this question earlier a little bit. Um, thinking about intentionality, resisting the language and ideology of racial difference. Um, what are your parting words for our listeners 
um, and more specifically educators that may be listening uh, to this podcast that are seeking new tools for rejecting the language of ideology and racial difference in life and in the classroom? How should they move forward even in Hmm. these changing times? Oh, wow. Um, That's quite a bit. I'm going to dump that on you as the last (laughs) question. No, I mean, well, going back to the quote, that quote spoke to me because I think that um, there are many ways to experience the world as another. And I think that um, if we're willing to allow people to share what, what has othered them or what are ways they have been othered, um, we can actually create a much more constructive, productive conversation around identity and around challenging systems of oppression. Um, I think my parting words or my advice is uh, to think very closely and critically about how solidifying this notion of an inherent us and them in the world vis-a-vis the concept of race is is anathema to challenging white supremacy, systemic racism, and um, anti-Blackness. I think that children should not be receiving the lesson that their skin color automatically defines them. They should not be receiving the message that skin color uh, separates them. They should not be receiving the message that skin color um, is an affinity, because there are plenty of people like myself who are deeply uh, connected to individuals of very different skin tone from my own, right? Beginning with my mother and my father. My mother is much darker than I am and my father is much lighter than I am. And now as a mother, um, I cannot stand idly by and allow my son to receive messages that not only um, tell him he is inherently superior, which he is not, but that also tell him that he is inherently different from his own mother, his own grandmother, his own family, right? And I think that certainly my son is is not necessarily your most common experience, but I think um, that story is going to be more and more common, right? That you have these multi-ethnic families through whatever reason, adoption, biological, whatever, Um and you have to engage those conversations in a way that honors those families' truths. Um, and I recently, I was having a dialogue with a friend of mine who um, is Indian American, and she's married to an Irish, um, an Irishman. He's from Ireland. He didn't grow up here. And they have a little girl now. And the little girl, like my son, is presumed to be white. And we were discussing how, as dark-skinned mothers of children who reap the benefits of whiteness, we need to fight the system as it stands, but also teach our children and all children should be learning this, how wrong that is. And I said to her, um, and it dawned on me that this is something I want to sort of work on, but I said, anti-blackness relies on the continued perpetuation of whiteness. So the ideology and the language have to change. That's, uh, that's powerful. I agree. Thank you. Changing the narratives, changing the, uh, the system, right, in and of itself, as 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 the world is seemingly burning around us, and people are are yes. up in arms, and rightfully so, because Black Lives yeah. Matter, right? Absolutely, um, Black Lives Matter. I want to thank you for being on the show. It's a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much, Jedi. I'm so pleased. Thank you for reading my book, and thank you for inviting me. Um, and you know, maybe we continue to be the change we want to see in the world. Absolutely. You're listening to What in the World Language Podcast.